and that's an important, important type topic. As we think about the worship service, it's important that we understand uh, that there is a order that God places in worship, and He wants us to worship orderly, uh, decently in order, as we'll see in just a few moments. Let's read, uh, starting in verse number 26 this morning, and we're going to read all the way down to the last, part, last verse of the chapter, and by the grace of God, we'll get through all verses here this morning. Let's read. The Bible says, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other one, uh, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the spirits. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet the prophecy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Father, I pray that you would guide our thoughts. I pray that you would guide my words. God, you know exactly how your word is lead, uh, leads and directs. And God, you place this text at, I believe, the appropriate time for this church. And God, as the word of God is given, I pray that you would help us, please, to rightly divide the word of truth, to receive it in the same spirit in which was given, to receive it spiritually, not carnally, please. And God, I pray that you would teach us, guide us, walk us through your truth, I pray, with the help of the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, once again, I yield myself to you. Please use me. God, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, just like everyone else here. And God, I need your wisdom. I need your power. I need your unction. Now, please help me, I pray, to help your people in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. In the first century, in a time in which we see in context the church of Corinthian being addressed to, by, by Paul upon order and running things in a way in which glorified God in the church, there was something called an open platform, if we can use our today's, today's vernacular, or an open pulpit. What would that mean? Well, if you'll remember, when Jesus Christ ascended up to heaven, there was no pastor. There was no one that would take the mantle of the pastorship for some time. Peter arguably became the first pastor in Jerusalem after some time. We don't know how long that was. 
Um, it could have been months. It could have been a few years. We honestly don't know. But the Bible does indicate that at some point, Peter stepped into that position for a time. After that time, the Bible tells us that James, somewhere between uh, uh, afterwards, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, would become the pastor. But until there was an official pastor, there, the Bible tells us that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. In other words, there was 12 men that would share the platform or the pulpit of that church. There was a team of people that were relying upon the yieldness and the leading of the Holy Spirit of God to lead that church forward. You know, what a wonderful thing it is that God gives us examples like that in Scripture, one, to comfort us. I know, Scummersdale Baptist Church, you're walking through a time that's a little uncertain right now. But watch this, it's not without precedence. This is not something truly that God takes, has taken God by surprise. Jesus Christ himself allowed the men, of the, the men, disciples, to lead the congregation for a time. This is something that God helps and gives grace through the church. When Paul left Corinth, the Bible does not tell us if there was a pastor. The Bible tells us Apollos would eventually become pastor. Even Peter would take the pastorate for a time. But there were times where the Bible doesn't indicate if there was a pastor as he would send Timothy and he would send Titus and others to go and to help that church. This is not a time that is uncovered in Scripture. This is a time in which God gives grace and gives help. And it's a time in which you have a privilege of growing personally as a church together. I understand a little bit of uncertainty. But God gives grace in those moments. When we are weak, God says, then he is what? Strong. What a wonderful thing it is that God gives grace and strengthens. May I encourage you, church, to not be dismayed. God is still on the throne. He has not changed. God will guide. God will lead. God has the right man at the right time. And I understand that these next couple of days are going to be filled with emotions in the weeks coming up. I understand that. However, take comfort in the fact that God has led other churches, a multitude of churches, down these roads. And these churches have continued and gone forth with the gospel, and God has given them grace and strength. And this is the type of setting in which Paul was addressing the church in Corinth. A setting in which, arguably, there was no pastor there. There was a group of men that were leading the church, and were guiding, and were directing and in this time, Paul was addressing some things that had developed in the church. And Paul was trying to encourage this church to worship the Lord in uh, decently and in order. And this is a custom that began even in, among the Jewish synagogues. You can go into the Jewish synagogues today and you can still see a similar connotation to that to where people would come up and people would be given opportunity uh, whether to give scripture or to state a prayer or to have a part in the service. Even today, you'll see this type of pattern. Where did that stem from? Many, many, many years ago. And uh, that has been a tradition that has continued this was a great privilege 
a wonderful opportunity for people who uh, God had given maybe a, uh, some scripture to and uh, some men that God was burdening with sharing the truth to have an opportunity to teach and to help and to instruct and encourage and how the Holy Spirit would fit that together would just be incredibly of God. However, with the privilege, it also can be prone to what man is prone to, carnality. Beginning to operate in the flesh instead of, a, instead of the Spirit of God. And this would develop into what? Problems. Problematic behavior. And anytime we work in the flesh, anytime we work amongst things in which is our own power and our own wisdom and our own understanding, we get ourselves into trouble, do we not? We all can look back and see times in which we've got ourselves in trouble, myself included, over and over again. Why? Because it's something we battle. We battle the flesh. And sometimes there's those moments in flesh in which we give authority to the flesh instead of the Spirit of God. And we see this moments of flesh that was developing in the church in Corinth. This moments in which this church was being carnal was a time in which was being very chaotic and very confusing. Things were done very much out of order. The Bible gives us insight that people were getting up and speaking multiple different languages at the very same time. Could you imagine that? <laughs> I've been using the illustration of speaking Japanese the last couple of weeks. has been speaking of languages. Could you imagine uh, me speaking Japanese? I, I'm trying to imagine me speaking Japanese too. Uh, but if I could speak Japanese and I did speak Japanese, someone else be speaking in Polish and someone else speaking in English, all at the same time, some even trying to shout down others. That's kind of where they were going. Could you imagine walking into a service and three languages being talked at the same time and one trying to shout down the others and the others trying to outlast the others and it would, it was chaos. It was confusing and truly it was something that was developing into a truly a carnal nature. And Paul addressed that and we've looked at that in previous chapters, the carnality of this church. The Bible teaches us that there were times in which people did not want to listen and they would take those moments to stand behind that open, open platform, that open pulpit, if we can describe it that way. And they would use up the time so that no one else could speak or no one else uh, had an opportunity to give rebuttal or to even to add to what maybe even the Holy Spirit of God was giving. But it was done through a method of carnality instead of an openness and a heart of wanting to work as a team going forward with the gospel of Christ. There was a lot of things going on in this church, a lot of things happening. Unfortunately, most of it was baby carnality Christianity. And Paul was trying to bring some maturity to this church through the teaching of Scripture this morning. And this morning, let's traverse down through how Paul encourages through the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Remember, we understand that Paul was used by God to pen these words to the church in Corinth. But remember who is the author. The author is not Paul. The author is the Holy Spirit of God. He is the one that gave instruction to Paul, that led Paul, 
Paul was just the writing instrument. He was the pen that was simply writing down the words of God. And the Bible teaches us that God used Paul to try to bring some order and to bring order to this church in Corinth. Look at verse number 26 with me, please. Notice what the Bible says. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Paul here begins by talking about the chaos and the confusion going on. Notice what he says. He says, every one of you has a song. What does that mean? Like a song. Could you imagine one person singing victory in Jesus and the other person saying, I don't want to sing victory in Jesus right now. I want to sing amazing grace. And at the same time, one would be singing one song, another would be singing another, or they would say, you know what, I don't like that song, I want to sing this song instead, and stopping one in the middle of a song. That's the kind of things that was going on in this church, confusing and chaotic. The Bible tells us that everyone hath a doctrine. And so people were competing even with doctrine from the Word of God in this area. Hath the tongue, and we spoke about that just a moment. Hath the revelation, something in which God has revealed to them, something the truth in which Scripture has given. And people were competing and vying. It was very much of a competitive and even an antagonistic point in which people were combating one another with the truth in which God had given. Hath an interpretation. The Bible teaches us that Paul uh, heard about how one was maybe translating and interpreting. Let's say someone was speaking Japanese, and there was two interpreters in the church. One could speak Japanese well, and one could speak Japanese fairly well, but was still learning. And they were trying to translate it just for sake of our vernacular to English. And uh, one interpreter would get up and say, you know what, that's really not the best way to interpret that. Here's the way in which you should interpret that and there was a battle for even interpreting what what someone was trying to state through truth all of that was happening all of that was going on and notice what paul says let all things be done unto edifying paul says i hear about this confusion i hear about the battles and the worrying that's going on he says wait a minute he says the purpose of you coming together is to edify what does that word edify speak of? It means of building and strengthening one another. God says the purpose of coming together and worshiping Christ together is to edify. And we spoke on that over the last couple of weeks, and so I'm not going to rehash that truth. But the Bible teaches us that it's important that we understand the spirit of wanting to build one another up instead of tear one another down. If we want to hear people tearing one another down, all we've got to do is turn on the telly and turn on BBC. Uh, all we've got to do is to be able to turn on any, any news media and you'll see tearing people down. You see that. Even in so-called good news, the spirit is to tear down people. I don't like that. I think that's a sinful approach even to those who are trying to get the truth out. There's a way to speak the truth and to speak it in love and not to tear people down. Why do, why, does, why do we have to criminalize people for not being ignorant sometimes of truth or going down a path? There's a way of saying, look, you know, this is the direction one's heading. 
but there's a better way. And there's a way to handle it gracefully instead of tearing and ripping one apart, one another apart. And that's where the spirit of Corinth was. Let's edify. Let's build. The world tears us apart. And when we come into church, we come into church sometimes ragged, do we not? Feel like we've been pulled so many different directions. And we need some words of grace and of love and of comfort to encourage and to build and to help put some salve on the wounds instead of being hurtful and despiteful between one another. The Bible teaches us that there was some fighting. Fighting for, fighting for uh, 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 the prospective of more limelight, of more attention, or even recognition for their gifts. There was a lot of contention going on. And Paul was addressing this and saying, here's how you begin to stop it among the public servants. It had gotten so bad that it was now entering into the platform and into the pulpit. And Paul said, you need to stop it. And you start it by leading from the pulpit. You start leading it from the platform on how you can encourage a spirit of edifying instead of tearing down one another. And so here's what he gives order to. And he does so very practically. We're just going to look at Scripture today. Remember, this is not my truth. This is God's truth. This is not my words. This is God's word. And so, let's just traverse down through Scripture here this morning and see how God commands this church to bring order to it. First of all, He gives order regarding tongues or languages. Look at verse number 27, please, with me. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. So the Bible teaches us that the very first thing in which if one is wanting to reveal or to speak uh, publicly is to ask, is there an interpreter? That makes sense. <laughs> if I'm going to speak Japanese this morning and no one else speaks Japanese, it doesn't make sense for me to speak Japanese this morning. And so the Bible tells us, Paul taught, that if there is no interpreter, then that man should just simply sit and be blessed by the service. That's it. He knows his heart. He knows what language he's speaking. No one else knows it, but he is worshiping God. He is praying and he is fellowshipping with God in his own language, in his own tongue. No one else can speak it, so he ought not to be speaking publicly. Simple. That makes common sense. The second thing is by an interpreter. Notice he says, by two or three. What does that mean? Okay, let's go back to the illustration that we've been using for these couple weeks. I speak Japanese. I, as I speak, there's a Japanese-English interpreter. And as I speak Japanese, this interpreter then would interpret after I pause. I've done this very thing in Spanish. And uh, you think my messages are long now. Uh, wait till you have to times it by two when you translate it to another language, amen? Uh, but uh, uh, that's what would, they would do. They would give a truth. They would say, Jesus loves you, this I know. For the Bible uh, 
after the Bible tells me so. And then the interpreter would then interpret it in the language of the congregation. And so there'd be a statement, and then the interpreter would make that uh, uh, translation or interpretation to the congregation. That would be by two. One speaking one language and another interpreting into another language. That's by two. But the Bible tells us, Paul says, it can be done by three. What does that mean? Okay, let's get a little complicated here for just a moment. I'm going to try to keep it simple this morning. Let's say I'm speaking Japanese, uh, and I don't know English. However, there's someone who speaks Japanese and Polish. And so he translates from Japanese to Polish. Now, he doesn't know English. He just knows Japanese and Polish, but he doesn't know English. But there's someone else who knows Polish and English. And so I speak in Japanese, he translated in Polish, he takes it from, and then another man takes it from Polish and speaks it in English. That is three. Paul said, don't go any further than that because could you imagine the confusion that you get from trying to go from uh, Chinese to Japanese to Polish to French to uh, uh, Swahili to uh, Spanish back to English, you know, it, it would get confusing and honestly, the burden of the time that it would take to translate would become burdensome, not only among those who are interpreting, but it would also become burdensome to those who are listening. Already, a 10-minute message by three interpreters, or by two other interpreters, would take 30 minutes to translate a 10-minute message. Could you imagine a multitude of people wanting to speak even for a few moments, the services would become burdensome to people. And Paul was trying to give the inspiration of Scripture common sense to the church to say there needs to be a limit on how many interpreters you use. And so the Holy Spirit set up by two, and that's the preferred, preferred way, if that must be, but at most three. And so the Bible gives instruction there, and we understand that that makes sense to us this morning. And it's fair for us to see how God puts order there. So there's order regarding speaking in tongues or speaking in different languages. Again, the Bible says by course. And again, that doesn't mean that one people, one person just keeps preaching in one language and the interpreter at the same time is trying to keep up but rather a pause he makes a statement john three sixteen, and the other one gives that same by course and so again they take turns so that way multiple languages are or multiple languages are heard but in their own respective time frames number two order regarding prophesying or preaching uh, look at what the Bible tells us in verse number 29. The Bible says, let the prophets speak two or three. We'll stop there for just a moment. The Bible says, let the prophets speak two or three. So what is he speaking? He says, when it comes time to the prophesying, again, remembering the biblical context here, uh, the biblical context of prophesying, again, is speaking what has been given through the apostles' doctrine, and using that to com help complete the canon of Scripture, uh, as it were, uh, to 
teach what the apostles have taught, uh, again, in the fulfilling of the canon of Scripture. But again, we've stated that if we use prophesying in our day and age, um, in our context, the canon of Scripture has been completed, but we are looking from the canon of Scripture, and if we are defining prophesying as looking at the, from the completed canon of Scripture and giving the truth of the Word of God, the Bible then teaches us uh, that we could classify that uh, as a prophecy or as preaching or as this role, if we're taking an illustration from this text here this morning. And so what does Paul speak of? Paul says no more than two or three preachers, no more than two or three speakers in one service. Uh, the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned a moment ago, knows that we grow weary, knowing knows that our minds aren't perfect and that our minds can only take so much. And there comes time in which the Holy Spirit says, okay, that's enough. Um, and I try to be sensitive towards that. Uh, I, I'm not as good of, at that as I should be. But the Bible knows when the Holy Spirit, uh, or when the Holy Spirit gives us a moment to simply stop and to carry on. The Bible doesn't, Bible encourages the church services to not become burdensome. Uh, not to become a moment of weariness, like, oh, no, I've got to go to church again. And uh, God wants it to be fresh and exciting. God wants it to be a moment in which we look forward to hearing the truth instead of trying to run away from it. And there's a balance there. And the Bible teaches us that when there's more than one speaker, that it ought to be two and at the most three. Uh, but then again, to not use that as a moment where it becomes burdensome and gives a temptation for people to stay away. Look, please, at the last portion of Scripture and let the other judge. So two or three are speaking in the Bible, says, and let the other judge. What is that speaking of? It's speaking of one looking at Scripture, and as one hears the Scripture, to then look at the Word of God and say, is what this person's saying, is what is being preached, able to be verified in Scripture? Paul, he himself knew that he was subject to this very thing. Paul did not excuse himself from this. The Bible tells us in Acts 17, he commended the church uh, in, Thessalon uh, in, excuse me, in Berea more than the church in Thessalonica because they studied the word of God. Look at Acts 17 with me, verse number 10. Keep your place there in 1 Corinthians. We're going to come right back to it in just a moment. But notice what God gives. The Bible says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither into the synagogue of the Jews, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. So as Paul and Silas taught two preachers, again, just like he taught the church in Corinth here, and as they preached... They commended the church in Berea that they looked at the Word of God, they studied it out, and said, yeah, that makes sense. That's what the Bible says. And I take that on board, not because of who stated it, but because the Word of God is the, one, is the instruction. And Paul commended them on that and encouraged this church in Corinth to do just that. Not to accept teaching just because it is eloquent or because you like the way it is expounded, but because it is scriptural and the Spirit of God gives confirmation through His Word. And again, to edify uh, and to help build the church. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, we're traversing through scripture here this morning. 
I want you to see that he says not, he gives order not among preaching. He gives order to be cautious, and then he gives order uh, gives order in the preaching of the word of God to be what to be courteous. Notice what the Bible says: If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. The context here is multiple people speaking and preaching the word of God. He says, "Let be, concert, be courteous, be mindful of others that are going to be speaking that day. The last couple of years, we've had revivals where we've had multiple speakers each night, if you remember. First year, uh, we had Brother Bob Jones and Brother Gary Mann preach. And do you remember how much they were mindful and trying to be respectful of one another's time? Brother Mann would be very mindful of the time. He wanted, didn't want to take away any time for Brother Bob Jones. Or Brother Bob Jones was mindful and courteous likewise. It was a time in which they worked together to be respectful of one another's time and not to be a burden to us who were listening to the word of God. And this is what Paul is addressing here. He says, when it comes time for speaking, and he says one is speaking, be mindful that there is another man that is coming up and preaching after you. Be mindful of that. Don't, you know, if, if there's an hour of preaching time allotted and there's three different men, you know, be mindful of that. Be respectful with one another. You know, don't, don't take up 59 minutes and then leave a minute for the other two preachers. Uh, that's not very courteous. That's not, that's not respectful. And God wants us truly to understand that there are moments as we have in this type of a setting where it was multiple preachers to be mindful of the time and know when to hold our speech, hold when to hold our peace. And they say, I just need to be quiet and sit down and let someone else minister to me. And that is a biblical and right way to do. And thank God we've had men like that who had followed this very principle and have been respectful of this instruction in Corinth. Number, verse number 31, and God speaks of growing together. Notice he says, for ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn. Again, one by one. Notice it's taking by turns. It's not coming up and all three men beginning to preach at the same time. That would be chaos and confusion, but take turns one by one, that all may learn and that all may be comforted. One of the benefits of having multiple men speaking and preaching in the service would there be an opportunity for a knowledge to be expounded upon in a myriad of different viewpoints as far as uh, still same context, but taking the applications and making it personal on how God has taught them. In other words, just like the church in Corinth, they, there were some that said, I like Paul. Some said, I like Apollo. Some said, I like Cephas or Peter. In other words, I like the way he teaches it. And some said, no, I like the way this man teaches it better. And I like the way this man teaches it. And it got to be a point of contention and a point of division in the church. And the Bible tells us that, that uh, Paul said that's not the way it ought to be. We're all speaking the same truth. But this type of a service would give an opportunity 
for the uh, for someone in the congregation to have an opportunity to connect with a personality along with the truth. If you understand what I'm saying, I'm trying to. I don't know if I'm explaining it as well as I should be, um, but it's a moment in which we are comforted. That word comforted there is the Greek word parakaleo, which means to call aside or appeal to, to be exhorted. In other words, to become earnestly supported or encouraged for a response of action. Uh, In other words, God was using this time to collectively teach the word of God to touch a greater assortment of listeners as some would resonate with certain speakers and certain truths more than others and give people an opportunity to resonate with some part of the service, some part of the truth of the word of God. And it was a moment in which it would give an opportunity for people to grow together. Again, it's edifying. It's building together that one may be engaged, supported, encouraged through the speaking in the church service. And this was to be done in a very much of a co-laboring spirit. Look at verse number 32, please, with me. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the spirits For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Paul here reminds the spirits of the preachers that they ought to complement one another, that they ought to complement each other, and as they do so, it is an indicator that the Holy Spirit of God was the one organizing the service, was organizing the preaching and the teaching of the truth. Can I go back to the revival messages? Or if you remember the multiple men that we've had, first, sir, first time, Gary Mann and Bob Jones, and last year we had a multitude of different pastors. Uh, we had Brother Keith Kashner, and we had Dave Solt, and we had Simon Watts speaking for us as well. But it was amazing at how God took both of the messages or the messages of all of those men and wove them together in just a wonderful, synchronous way. Those men were not comparing notes. They did not say, okay, I'm going to teach this portion and I'm going to teach this. No, no, no. It was the Holy Spirit of God that was putting this together. And Paul was stating that when the spirits are subject to the other, in other words, when they seamlessly fit together or when they are submissive or in connection with one another, it is an indicator that God is moving through his Holy Spirit and teaching and working in the church service, that he is the one that is behind it, that he is the one that is the author or the leader behind the service or the messages. God is not the author of confusion. Years ago, I was preaching in a missions conference, and the uh, to speak, and I remember this very clearly. I was uh, speaking and giving truth on uh, the biblical principle of giving to missions and uh, taught scripture and uh, compared scripture with scripture and uh, clearly gave instruction um, on giving to missions and the importance of it and the biblical nature of that very object. The following night, there was a church planner that was there that happened to be the son of a pastor. And this man got up, and I felt like nearly two-thirds of his message 
was given to directly ridicule and to mock at the very things that the Bible taught the previous night. And I just happened to be the speaker of that night. I just felt like, wait a minute, was it not Scripture? You know, I was trying to even wrap my mind about where did Scripture go wrong there? And yet he seemingly found reason to find a contention point and made it a subject in which apparently others agreed upon, but it was there. And it was very much of a contentious moment and confusion. I was confused. I know others were thinking, wait a minute, we just heard this and now you're saying this. Who's right? What scripture's right? And it was a moment in which confusion was taking place. And it became a moment in which was a spirit of very much of a division, very much of a contention, sadly so. God says that's not how the leadership of the church ought to be, especially those speaking publicly. It ought to be a matter of one encouraging and edifying speaking and encouraging one another working together subject one to another it's important that the spirits of the prophets merge in submissiveness to the word of god and if there's a contention in which people do not understand get clarity talk it through it's never a good idea to use the platform as a means to bring contention and doctrine. Never a good idea. It always leads a road in which leads to carnality in Christians instead of spiritual maturity. Years ago, I was part of a church service, uh, a service in which we were going to a family member's church and still new to biblical or baptistic doctrine and as we were learning and growing in this we went to the church service family we were visiting family and went to their service and it was a large church many many people there and the pastor preached what i thought at the time was a good message uh was seemed like it was biblical and it was centered on the gospel it seemed like it was a good message but then all of a sudden at the end of that the pastor walked down to the front. They had multiple steps, and he walked down to the front. And as he was speaking, just started convulsing for a moment. Almost in an um, uh, uh, epileptic way, in some ways. And then all of a sudden, he just looks like passes out in the front of the church. Everyone's watching. The service looked like it was coming to a close. And as he was falling, men rushed up to catch him so he didn't hit the ground. And all of a sudden, our family looked over and said, our pastor was just slain in the spirit. This is wonderful. And they started running to the front of the church and people just started fly, falling over like dead flies. It came to a point in which it was confusing. It was chaotic. It was not done in decent order, nor was it even scriptural. 
a lot of things in which was out of context and out of order in which it was done, but that spirit of that church service changed instantly. You were hearing the word of God, and then all of a sudden, what was on display that spoke volumes to every one in the audience was the experience that was desired instead of the truth to be heard. And suddenly it changed completely to not upon what the Word of God is teaching, but how should I now perform? And publicly. And this was something in which was promoted and encouraged that the Holy Spirit of God is suddenly going to knock you out That better not happen while you're driving. (laughs) It better not happen as you're operating heavy machinery at work. (laughs) It's not in context. It's very much a moment in which one emotionally builds oneself up in in a spirit or an emotional high. And that emotional high moves one to enable their body to function in a way in which brings detriment to the gospel instead of order. It brings confusion. Not not peace. Confusion. God wants to bring peace in the churches and among the saints. Number three, he gives order regarding speaking in tongues or languages, order in preaching, And then thirdly, order regarding women. Look at verse number 34, please, with me, if you would. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Stop there for just a moment. Paul taught earlier in chapter 11 on the a part or the role in which women can have in the church. He taught on how a woman, if she is singing or giving testimony, how she can do so in the service, remember, with her glory, which is her hair, uh, to be an indicator of her submissiveness to the male authority in the church. Remember, a church is to be led by the men, and God, led, God gave that as a reason to protect the church and also to lead the church. doesn't mean that there are spiritual ladies that are even more mature sometimes than the male leadership or more spiritual. That's not taking away from that at all. God says they can have a part in the service, but regarding the authority and the leadership in the church, God says, God has given that to the men. The Bible teaches us that in 1 Timothy and the importance of the men leading the church. So Paul here is not stating that a woman cannot have a part in the service. Remember, he is speaking regarding what? The teaching and preaching ministry of the church. Remember, the Bible tells us that a pastor is to be husband of one wife. What does that speaking do? Again, the male authority of pastor and of leadership that is speaking and preaching the truth of the word of God. The Bible teaches that over and over again. And again, Paul says it goes back to the law. 
The Bible tells us that God gave man, God gave Adam, the leadership role in the home, not to be, not to mean that the woman is subject to that as far as, uh, uh, as far as a lower part of the home. That's not what it is. It's a team together. But the final decisions do come down to the authority of the men in the home. And the Bible teaches us that and gives us instruction of those things. God speaks of that in Genesis 1 and chapter 2. And we see that as Paul is giving the teaching or the preaching ministry of the church, that during that time, the Bible tells us that the women are to learn and to be in silence during that time. The Bible teaches us that it's a moment in which women are supposed to be able to learn and to seek in and soak in the truth of the scripture. And again, this is God's giving women an opportunity to learn truth of scripture with the rest of the multitude, the rest of the congregation there. And the Bible teaches us that God then gives further instruction here. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And again, speaking of the pulpit ministry of the church. And that's important for us to understand the setting, the context here in which Paul is giving. Paul tells us that during that time, if there is a question, maybe as one of the speakers is speaking, there's a truth that doesn't make quite sense or doesn't fully uh, fit together, it seems. And so the wife goes home and says, you know what, I heard this truth and doesn't fully click with me. I'm trying to understand it. Could you help me understand it? And then the Bible tells us that the husband goes and and as a spiritual leader begins to help and to instruct and say, well, let's talk this through. And there's no problems with asking and answering questions. Remember that he is speaking of the pulpit ministry. There's been times where we've where I've spoken with ladies, of course, after the services, and uh, even husbands and wives together as we've talked through something. Maybe I didn't explain something as well as I should have, or maybe there was a little part in which I had in my notes, but I left out, and it kind of made two pieces of the puzzle not quite fit together, and it's like, oh yeah, you got to turn it just a little bit this way, and then it simply plugs right in. And an opportunity to speak and to talk. And there's nothing wrong with asking questions. Paul's not saying no one can speak before or after church. That's not what he's speaking of here. But he is speaking of a moment in which the teaching and preaching of the church is going forward. That it is a time to learn in silence to be subject in that area. And the Bible teaches us that that is for our protection and to help us to worship God decently and in order. And to do so under proper authorities. And God does so to protect us. I remember years ago, um, Holly and I were sitting with a pastor and his wife after service. And uh, we began talking about the message that he preached that day. And as we began talking about it, my wife began to ask questions uh, about some things in which she had heard the the pastor had mentioned. And started talking it through. And uh, there was no issues. There was no problems. It's scriptural and right to do that. There's nothing wrong with no, with uh, having some questions answered about the truth of the Word of God. There are some churches 
take a very hard stance upon this, that take this and twist it out of context and by a very mean and ungrace-like spirit and a very ungracious spirit uh, make this into something in which God does not intend for it to be. I've heard some men say, bless God, when a woman enters in the church, she should never say a word until she leaves the church. It's not what the Bible is teaching here. Again, he's speaking of the pulpit ministry of the time in which the teaching and preaching is going on. It's as simple as that. But there are, if we're not careful, we can take a carnal and ungracious spirit and we can use this as a means to hurt others instead of trying to bring order. And that's what God was trying to do here through the Spirit of through, uh, through the Holy Spirit, through Paul was to help this church to be in order, uh, to worship Christ together. Now, Paul knew that this thought, especially this last part, was not going to be received well. Why? Because uh, it's not going to be received well by (laughs) some that are viewing today. I understand that. I'm just speaking scripture. I'm just teaching what the word of God has to say. This is not my words. This is, this is what God gives instruction on. Paul anticipated there was going to be some carnal responses to this. And so he gives some instruction here in the following verses on how to receive the order, or I've entitled it the order received as we look at the second and last part, uh, or second point of this last part of the message here. Notice what the Bible tells us in verse number 36. What came the word of God out of? From you, or came it unto you only? Paul here kind of answers the rebuttal of carnal Christians very clearly by saying, Why is this a problem? Are you a, do you have a monopoly on truth? Are you the sole authority on truth? Are you the one that has every answer to all that God has given? Are you stating that God has never shown truth to anyone else? Is that what you're saying, church in Corinth? You're the sole authority on all things? No one has truth but you? And those are the rhetorical questions in which he's asking because he knew that it would be received with protest of these God-ordained instructions You see, there would be arrogance, pride, and conceit that would be the battleground here for the reception of truth. The Corinthians were not the only ones that originated with truth. In fact, they did not originate with truth. It came to them by Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. There was and is no monopoly on the Word of God. God used multiple men to give us Scripture. There's no one that has a monopoly on the Word of God. These, they were not the only ones. The church in Corinth was not the only one with the Word of God. And Paul addressed this even in his very opening statement to the church. Go back to chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians. Look at verse number 2. Notice what it says. Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, notice to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
what was he saying? He says, look, this, is not, uh, this letter is not just to you, church in Corinth. It's to all churches, all saints who know Jesus Christ and call him Lord. It's to all who truly believe in Jesus Christ. And so he combats this carnal response anticipated, helping them to realize the reality that they are not the ones with solely with truth, that they don't have a monopoly on the word of God, that God truly does lead and guide and direct. And he gives a spiritual response to this. Look at verse number 37 in our text here this morning. And if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. As a spiritual man sees the commands of the Spirit of God, as the Holy Spirit is inspired, divinely revealed, and God breathed edicts for them and for us today. In other words, he was saying, look, a spiritual man receives the truth, acknowledges the truth, and says, this is a command, this is an edict for them today. In other words, it is a moment in which we look at the Word of God and say, you know what, this is much of a command of God as the Ten Commandments are. Just like thou shalt not kill is a commandment in Scripture, what we just read and what we walk through through the order of service is just as much of a command as thou shalt not kill is a command. It is just as valid and it is just as important. A true prophet, a spiritual man here, sees the truth, accepts it, and implements the truth. He sees these truths as not open for debate or public opinion. And these truths are not. These truths are what God has given. These are not times in which we say, well, is God right here? Well, God is right. He's always right. This is not a moment for public opinion or how should we do things. I know of churches today that are sending out questionnaires saying, what would you like to see in the service of a church? And I understand in partly the context there of trying to help people where they are. But the fallacy is, is when you start building a service or building a church upon what people want instead of what God has ordered, you have problems. There's problems there. Why? Because it's built upon the carnality of man instead of the spiritual truth of God. And so the Bible teaches us the importance of of seeing the truth of God and of truly building upon the commandments that God gives. God is always right and his truth endures forever. Paul gives a spiritual response. The spiritual response sees it, accepts it, and begins to practice it. It's as simple as that. Then he gives a carnal response. Look at verse number 38, please. But if any man be ignorant... Let him be ignorant. A false prophet or a carnal man begins to quarrel or quibble about the truths that God gives. Paul calls this an ignorance. This ignorance is a disregarding. That's what that word actually means, to disregard. It means to refuse, to acknowledge. It speaks of to knowing or to seeing the truth but choosing to ignore it. It's saying, I see the truth of what God is teaching, but I'm choosing to ignore it. I hear it, 
but I choose not to believe it. I choose not to practice it. I choose to reject it. That is the ignorance in which Paul is speaking of here. It is that old analogy that we use often. You can lead a horse to uh, to water, but you can't make it drink. It's seeing the truth, but you can't force that horse to drink. The same thing is true. Paul understood that there was going to be some that we're going to choose to willfully ignore what God chose to state. Often, this type of carnal nature, this type of fleshly-based Christianity, gives a rebuttal, well, I just have an open mind about this. The Bible speaks of others who have an open mind about the truths that God gives. God gives us a very clear instruction of a very wise man named Solomon who began to develop an open mind about the laws that God gave. He allowed his mind to be open to marry an Egyptian whom God said, I do not want you to marry. That opened the door for a multitude of wives who practiced and followed false gods. And those false gods would take his heart a direction that would lead him away from Scripture, to lead him a direction in which he ought not to go. And at the end, his openness led him to a point in which he would begin worshiping false gods and leading Israel a direction in which it ought not to go. So much so that God would take the kingdom, a majority of the kingdom of Israel, away from David's family. He would still give them Judah and Levi, but the other ten tribes would go a different direction because of the sinfulness of the open mind of Solomon. You see, what one states when they say, ah, we have an open mind in this area, is ultimately simply stating that I am close to the truth of what Scripture says. In other words, I'm open to alternative things, but I'm close to what God says should be closed. I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to adopt it. I'm not going to practice it. Why? Because I'm close to that, but I'm open to everything else. An open mind is simply a rejection of clear truth. That's all it is. And yet it's a very political and a very foot-forward way of trying to get people to buy in to what you really want to do through the carnal flesh instead of through the spiritual man. And so Paul here warns us of the carnal response to truth. And it's something in which we all need to check ourselves on. We heard some truth that's very... (laughs) tender if we can put it that way in our society today just now how are we going to accept it are we going to accept it spiritually or carnally based upon our flesh and our own desires god has a god has a principle god has an order he knows what's best look at verse number 39 and 40 and we're done wherefore brethren covet to prophesy want to prophesy look 
to prophesy. Look for avenues. Desire to preach and to teach the truth of Scripture. And forbid not, <coughs> excuse me, to speak with tongues. God is teaching us here that if someone wants to minister the gospel but needs to do so through another language, not to forbid them. Why would one someone forbid that? Now, some take this a completely out of context way and say, well, bless God, you should just allow uh, tongues, Japanese being spoken. Uh, when no one speaks Japanese, no one speaks that language, you should be able to have it stated. But Paul already gave that instruction that if there's no one that can speak it, don't state it in the first place. Don't speak it in the first place. But he's speaking of here, not of the service, but, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, but the opportunities given uh, to preach and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As that opportunity comes, if it's in another language, Paul states, if that opportunity is there and it's right to do so, and there's an interpreter that can preach, don't stop that. And why would we? If we had some Polish families that came, and there was an interpreter that was here that could speak in Polish, why would we prohibit someone who wants to know the truth in another language from hearing the truth in their own language? That doesn't make sense. We want everyone to have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and truly, we want people to know the gospel. And it's important that we have that heart of wanting others to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul reminds us here, let all things be done decently and in order. Decent. That word decent there is to speak of the word decorously, which means a manner that is characterized by propriety and manners and conduct. God says, I want you to do so decently in a way in which glorifies, gives decor, if we can put it that way, to the beauty and the majesty of God, that gives God uh, 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 truly, a uh, a a uh, or gives others an opportunity to see God for the beauty and the majesty in which He beholds. He says, "Do so decorously, decently, and in order." That word "order" speaks of good order, a condition of regular or proper or sequential arrangement. In other words, people should be able to follow along with the order of service. Why do we have an order of service? Because it's a opportunity for us to be clear and to do so in a manner in which does not bring confusion uh, we want people to be able to follow the service we want people to follow along and to do so uh, in a way in which is clear to all and in good order paul here teaches about the very practical nature i know we looked at some doctrine and some truths here this morning that some we see fought for in among churches and some in which we look for that are very personal in nature. But yet these things are truly helpful to help a church to be orderly and to glorify God in the worship ministry. The service of a church is important. That's why we work so hard to make sure that it is orderly, that it is done so carefully, and that it's planned and thoughtfully done. We want to do so. Why? Because we want to show others the beauty of our God. We want others to see the wonderful majesty of our Savior and to know that He is the one that we can trust. The gospel is worthy to have the time invested. May I encourage you this morning to continue 
to have order and worship. In a few weeks, you'll have an opportunity to practice what the church of Corinth was practicing. You'll hear from a multitude of speakers. For how long, I don't know. But I do know this, that God has an order. Keep practicing that order. Keep putting things in scriptural order and watch God work and bless in ways in which you may not even fully understand at this very moment. But God is a God. We can trust his worship. We can trust his methods. We can trust his instruction because it's right all the time.